An Aeroflot A310 is on its way from Moscow to Hong Kong when it suddenly crashes on its way. What caused this flight to plunge from the sky? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. We want to say hi to Amy and Will. Our new patrons. Hi. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. If you have not... I mean, we've talked with Will already on Patreon, but if... Amy, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's been a couple <laughs> weeks since you joined. Maybe even a month. But thanks. But thank you. Really. <laughs> so much. Actually, this week has been incredible. It makes me, like... We have gotten so many messages, whether it be Patreon or email or comments on Facebook or messages from Facebook from listeners far and wide. Shout out to Helen, who is currently Miranda's favorite. <laughs> you are my favorite. Thank you. But from all of you, like, we've gotten so many messages lately that have just been so great. We Like, it makes me so happy. I don't know. And I, with- it makes me appreciate our listeners so much. And with that, uh, logistically speaking, our schedule now goes out till... Uh, November. <laughs> We're recording this in January. So if you, if you ridiculous. recommend a crash that is not currently on our schedule, I'm sorry. We, we have talked about ways to mitigate this problem, but for now, keep recommending. If we get to a year out, we're going to have to have a talk. Yeah, we might reconsider. We might pause for a couple of months. Well, we might we might just switch it down to like, one recommendation per person per month because that way everybody can get a recommendation in yeah because we get a lot of recommendations from a few people and we get recommendations from people outside of that too but but like there's going to be several weeks in a row where it's chris's recommendations and several weeks in a row where it's helen's recommendations and several weeks in a row where it's chris and helen's recommendations (laughs) and we really appreciate it because you guys have made some amazing awesome recommendations really interesting stuff coming down the pipeline really really interesting stuff we are branching out a little bit the further we go into this podcast, but it's a lot of fun. But yeah, we are going to have to mitigate this a little bit because, we, man, oh man, we, we enjoy love you. the participation. <laughs> but, like, scroll it back a few notches, though. Yeah. Like, <laughs> what podcasts out there can really say that they are planned almost a year in advance by people who <laughs> recommend episodes? Yeah. Like. It's crazy. I'm sure true there's crime a, bod- podcasts have that. but There's one episode in there. Just one that I want to do and no one's recommended. I Okay. <laughs> so I came across it because we have a section in our spreadsheet that has, a, you know, like who recommended it. And it was blank. And I was like, what is this? I'm like, oh, this is the one Christy wants to do. And she goes, well, you can move it. And I was like, no, I'm just going to put because Christy wants to do it. <laughs> so it's not blank. <laughs> Speaking of recommendations, there is no way this one was not recommended. It was. So please tell me who that was. Thank you to... Rich. Ah, Rich. thanks, Rich. Awesome. Two in a row. All right. I don't think that was planned either. I think we moved one up and you already did one already. Correct. So thank you, Rich, for recommending this episode. Yeah. Given that, what are we covering today, Nick? Today we are covering Aeroflot Russian International Airlines Flight 593. I didn't know the name was that long. Uh-huh. Their official name that everybody calls them is just Aeroflot. Anymore, it's shortened down to Aeroflot. But officially, in written document, their name is Aeroflot Russian International Airlines. 
<laughs> okay. So that's not complicated. Also, everything about this episode is Russian, so this is going to be fun with names and stuff. Also, this report was wiggity wiggity whack, yo. <laughs> it was pretty out there. I mean, the information was there, but not well, and also contradictory and it was short it was a 22 page report but it had six sections no report has six sections we only ever have four so some things were out of place some things were in weird places and i'm not confident about like the second half of my part (laughs) i know what part you're talking about because i am also not confident in that part after reading the report and trying to pull as much information out of there like i was reading it and they have numbers spitting back and forth with data that they they were trying to interpret, and I'm not even sure they interpreted it correctly into the report. <laughs> oh, boy. So. This is going to be a fun episode, friends. Strap we, in. We are trying really hard to make this episode happen. But, actually, this is also a very unique episode, and I am kind of excited about how mad Miranda's going to get. So. <laughs> Miranda rage warning. You have been warned. As everybody enjoys my rage. We've been warning her all day and keeping it really... <laughs> Christy's like, you're going to get mad. You need to get through the mad so I can explain the mad. And I was yeah. like, okay. It's not going to well, make the mad any less. And then Nick's like, yeah, you're going to get mad and then you're going to stay mad. And that's just how it's going to be. Because <laughs> I explained, there are some episodes where we talk about stuff. You get mad. And then we're, we're like, wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. They actually had fair reasoning for this. In this case, mm, no. <laughs> so let's jump in. <sighs> This happened on March 23rd of 1994. This was an Airbus A310-300. Yeah, that was not a Russian plane. No. And actually, here's how rare that was. Did you pay attention to the date? It was in 1994. What does that mean? Three years after the Soviet Union fell. Hmm. So this was actually in Russia. And this was, they were pretty new to the whole Western culture invasion thing. And they... We're embracing it and trying to be involved in it. And in doing so, Aeroflot bought three Airbus A310s that they could hardly afford. So they bought these A310s. However, here's how complicated this gets. The tail number is Foxtrot-Oscar-Golf-Quebec-Sierra. Now, aviation nerds just went, wait a second. That's a French tail number. Yes, it is. Did they? Well, I mean, it's an Airbus. Did they buy it from... It is France? Here's how this goes. The airplane is registered in France because it is owned by the European Bank. It is then leased by Aeroflot Russian International Airlines. It's the airline. They are the airline that has the airplane, but they don't own it. European Bank does. And then it is operated by Russian Airlines. They provide the crew. This sounds very similar to the Manx 2 situation. Yes. However, this is kind of common... With Aeroflot at the time, anyways. Most Since the Soviet Union just fell? Yes. So most of the airplanes... That's true, yeah. Most of the airplanes that they had flown up to this point, though, were Soviet-made. So this was kind of new for them. The new type of airplane had a lot of new technology. Also, pretty new to the world, because Airbus was pretty new at the time. Not super new, but newer. And the A310 was a relatively advanced airplane. Fly-by-wire, all that, and as far as Russian technology goes, this was one advanced airliner. The flight we are talking about today was to be from Sheremetyevo to Hong Kong. So Sheremetyevo is one of the airports in Moscow. Of which there are... Four? Five? Anybody can... You can go on counting for days if you really want. But there are 
quite a few international airports in Moscow, point being. And they were flying specifically out of Shermitievo to Kai Tak in Hong Kong. Also have to be kind of specific, because there were two airports in Hong Kong at the time. This was the rare period of time where they were opening up the new airport. But this was still flying into the old one. The captain for the flight was to be Andrei Danilov. He was 40 years old. He had 9,675 hours total, of which 950 hours were on the A310. That's A3- like pretty experienced considering how new they were to this airplane. Pretty experienced, yeah. And this airplane, be it that it was new to the fleet, this was a relatively experienced captain considering for Aeroflot. They were a very elite group, the pilots from Aeroflot, or so we should say anyways. They were very elite for the airline. They were basically the best of the best the airline had to put forward. And they were, uh, out of the 3,000 pilots they had, they were the basically 15 pilots. Three. This was, we'll be talking about three of the 15 pilots chosen to be part of the A310 program, flying basically the most prestigious airplane in their fleet at the time. The first officer was Igor Piskarev. He was 33 years old. He had 5,885 hours total of which 440 hours were on the A310. And then there was a relief pilot. He was Yaroslav Kudrinsky. He was 39 years old. He had 8,940 hours total, of which 907 were on the type. Now, he was a relief pilot, but he was also a captain. So he was there to act as the secondary captain when the pilot in command for takeoff and landing was in a rest period in the cabin. Do you discuss why they needed a relief pilot? Well, that's because this flight was to be 13 hours and 39 minutes. Ow. That's a long flight. Did they not have a flight engineer? No. Okay. Advanced airplane. I mean, this thing is fly-by-wire. I mean, by we're wire talking about the... the a time where it was kind of like mixed a little bit, where there was some airplanes that didn't need them and some that did, so that's well, here's what I'm one, asking. One key thing about Airbus, they never had them. Oh, okay. Well, then, never mind then. Yes. Any in- flight engineers that they did have was, like, during testing, really, flight testing, yeah, to monitor it, monitor the, the aircraft systems as they went, especially as Airbus was a pretty new company and they were trying to prove themselves. But in reality, during airline service, they never needed them because the airplanes were so advanced that all of that data was just right in front of the pilots. Which is nice. Yeah. But yeah, it's a flight that Miranda would cringe at. Lengthwise. I just don't like being on planes for long amounts of time. You haven't been on the right plane with the you right service. You keep telling service. me that, and let me tell you, I'm sure that's true, yes. but it's going to be a long time till we can figure that out. <laughs> sort <laughs> so. of. Sort of, yes. Aeroflot allowed their flight crews to bring their families along for one per vacation per year. So, basically, in, in most airlines around the world, you get flight benefits for you and your family. And most of the time, that means they can travel kind of whenever they want. In, with Aeroflot, it was once per year, these flight crews were allowed to bring along their family for a vacation. So, that meant that it was like a once a year, nice, cool thing. And this was pretty prestigious for Russia. I mean, most of the time, they didn't travel international. It was still a little bit restricted. And so, they were kind of... I wouldn't say they were in the elite class, but this was an elite thing to do, per se. To travel internationally and do it basically for free at the airline's uh, niceties. So that said, Kadrinsky, the relief pilot, was taking advantage of this to bring his kids on their first international trip. His kids were a 13-year-old daughter and a 15-year-old son. 
Okay, so you remember how we talked about contradictions? So another source said 12 and 16. Right. Well, it's kind of like, I know only a few of you can listen to this, but with like the Kenyan Airways that I did, Mm-hmm. They mixed up the number of crew and passengers like three times in that report, and it was mm-hmm. all in one report. <laughs> I was like, I don't know which one's the right one. So it's around that age. Yes. So it's probably more like 13 and 15 if that's what's in the report. But. Yeah. Question around marks. those ages. Point young is. teens and later teens. Yes. Son was older yes. than daughter. Yes, so the daughter was Yana, and the son was Eldar. So the kids were traveling along, and then a fellow pilot for the airline, uh, Vladimir Marakov, was traveling as a passenger and was watching after the kids during the flight as their mother decided to stay back at home in Moscow and not participate in the vacation. So the point is, is like one of the flight crew has family along as well. The flight was to have these three flight crew, then nine cabin crew... And 63 passengers. Nine cabin crew for 63 passengers? Well, the airplane was capable of holding more than 63 passengers, let's be clear. It just wasn't a full flight. This is a wide-body airplane, though a very small one. This is basically the smallest wide-body airplane that has ever existed. But it is a wide-body nonetheless. And so there's still quite a few passengers. If they need anything. Yeah, they are on it. They're on it. (laughs) They're so bored that they will... You will not be needing for anything. Mind you, 13 hours and 39 minutes, that's a long flight. You get several meals. Well, and one crew was probably a relief crew, so it was probably more like half the crew was actually on active duty, while the other half was chilling, waiting for the switch. Right. And so, distinctly, why this is important, this 13 hour and 39 minute flight is because even though the A310 wasn't the best-performing airplane in the world, it was better performing than any of the airplanes Aeroflot had owned previously. It had a longer range than any of their planes. It wasn't faster, I'll say that, but it did have a longer range. And so they were capable of doing these really long flights, which is important because that's what allowed them to kind of branch out and be part of the international community. And so the A310 was a big step forward for Aeroflot. The flight departed Shermitievo at 4.39 p.m. local time. 30 minutes after takeoff, the flight reached its cruising altitude of 33,000 feet. Now, mind you, I had to do several conversions here because they put all of the times in UTC, all of the altitudes in meters, and all of the speeds in kilometers an hour. (laughs) The plane maintained its altitude and route at a speed of about 290 knots indicated. That seems pretty slow for most airliners these days, but uh, it's about right. 290 knots indicated until... 12.47 p.m. local time to a certain area. So this is four hours into the flight, let's be clear. It's a little over four hours into the flight. During this period of time, the captain had left the cockpit, and the relief pilot, Kadrinsky, became the captain or the pilot in command. After just four hours? Usually the captain's... uh, that do the takeoff will also do the landing, so they like to not be there for very long after takeoff. Oh, okay. They allow the relief pilot in, and then they'll take over sometime a few hours before landing to allow time for preparation. Okay, all right. That, that makes sort of sense. Yeah. The flight had a series of radio exchanges with the air traffic controller at Novokuznetsk about their location, heading, and their next reporting point. 
Avoku next is just a town kind of in the middle of nowhere, almost Siberia. Mm, okay. The airplane then made several shallow turns left and right. Seven minutes and 20 seconds after the conversation with the air traffic controller, the airplane then began to bank more heavily to the right. The bank angle increased to 45 degrees right, as a matter of fact, beyond its designed limits, and then continued to increase to about 50 degrees, at which point the airplane began to buffet. Yes. <laughs> which is a major sign of a stall. The airplane then began to pitch up. The airplane continued to bank to the right to 63 degrees, when suddenly the airplane bank was increased dramatically to 90 degrees. Between 12.55 p.m. and 58 seconds and 12.56 p.m. and 11 seconds, multiple warnings sounded, including altitude discrepancy, stall warning, and an autopilot off signal. The airplane then began to pitch down to negative 50 degrees nose down. The speed began to increase. At 12.56 p.m. and 11 seconds, the autopilot then disconnected completely, and the airplane began a steep pitch up, pushing well beyond the designed limits of the airplane. The airplane essentially stalled before entering a spin nose dive down to the right. The airplane experienced zero G at the time, so quite literally how they do what was known as the vomit comet, and the zero G test that they do, they take you on a parabolic arc. This airplane just did one. So they went to zero G for a brief period of time. The airplane was then pulled back until it began to recover, but the nose-up deflection was too high, and they ran out of time to recover. It struck the ground at 12.58 a.m. local time. The airplane crashed in the foothills of the Kuznetsky Alatau on the, the northeast slope of a, an 1,800-foot-high hill with mixed forest and about four and a half feet of snow. Great. The airplane struck the hill at an elevation of 1,200 feet, so about 600 feet shy of clearing the hill, at a high vertical speed, so descending very quickly, and with the gear, flaps, and slats all retracted. All 75 persons on board perished in the crash. So you said we haven't covered this before? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It seems like a simple, like, uh, don't know how to recover from the stall type. Okay, there's... so that might be part of it, but... There's a lot more to it than that. Great. A lot. Okay, so this investigation was performed by the Interstate Aviation Committee of Russia, or the IAC. They're also sometimes known as the MAK. I think I found another one, too, in the report. Stand by, because this was curious. It's MAK when translated into Russian and Cyrillic. Mm, I I see. I, I don't know. Uh, it's also very hard for us to usually do Russian crashes because, for one, they usually don't publish the reports across the internet. For two, they're also always in Russian. So the fact that we found an English translation was wonderful. So, okay, so this, I guess, doesn't really name what it was, but it says the accident investigation was carried out by a government commission appointed under the Russian government order number 370-P of Mar- 23rd March 1994 and chaired by VB. Efimov of the Ministry of Transport of the Russian Federation. Beautiful. Yeah. They, I, I've noticed that in the report, the only names they actually give, which I don't even think actually, maybe for the, the crew they didn't, they always did like an initial, initial, last name. Both black boxes were recovered and were vital to the investigation of the flight. Now, this is a pretty short report, as I mentioned, so I won't go so far into what was ruled out, though specifically engine failure was ruled out. The engines were operating. We're going to dive... 
Oh, God. That's a bad joke. I didn't notice it until I read it. Right into the CBR. <laughs> Come on. You might recall that there were a total of three pilots, pilot in command Danilov, backup pilot in command Kudrinsky, and co-pilot Piskarev. This was because it was a 13-hour and some change flight. No thank you. The CBR began recording at 12.26 a.m. local time, since it does only, at this point, record half an hour, 30 minutes of the flight. Yep. And 14 minutes into the CBR, the people in the cockpit consisted of the backup pilot in command, Kudrinsky, the co-pilot, the friend pilot, Marakov, and Kudrinsky's two kids. They had stepped into the cockpit just to see what was going on. Oh, no. Okay, listen. Wait. So you remember how the airplane was at cruising altitude in cruise flight for many hours now and had many hours of cruise flight to go. Right. So how in the world could it fall out of the sky? Brand new airplane, technologically advanced, it's, all it's that. It's just one of those things where I'm now gonna you t- shouldn't have more people that shouldn't be in the cockpit in and, the po- cockpit. And you're, I want to emphasize this does not happen. If you're mad now. Ever. Ever. I mean, so I kind of get it because it's like his kids and there's like... The, the other guy's a pilot. Like, I kind of understand, like, why they'd think it would be okay. Um, but... No. So, Kudrinsky... So you're mad now. The pilot in command... <laughs> Just wait. ...was also the pilot flying, in fact. He got up from his station and invited Yana to, quote, come and sit here now in my his, seat. Would you like that? His oh daughter. Oh, my God. No. His daughter. No, no, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Oh, just wait. <laughs> he never gave control of the plane to the co-pilot, who now has also pushed back his seat. All the way. <laughs> he's still strapped in, but he, he's just like... So that's fun. This violated about a bajillion different procedures, provisions, laws, etc., including the Flight Operations Manual and the Convention on International Civil Aviation. Yeah! Okay, so, listen... I get you want meet with your kids, right? Do it after you've landed. Yeah. First of all, don't do it while you're flying. You're working. That's a big part of why it's illegal. Number one and foremost. Number two, why you think it's okay to let a 13-year-old, 12-year-old, young person in a seat of an airplane that you are currently in charge of flying... While you didn't give over command to your co-pilot, where you know and you should know that any touching of the control surfaces could cause an issue where the autopilot disconnects, and guess what happens? Well, we're not there yet. It's okay. It wasn't Yana's fault. It wasn't. I still don't think it's a good idea. It's not. So, a few minutes in... The captain says things like, hey, Yana, are you going to fly it? Go ahead and take the controls. Oh, God. For the following three minutes, the plane turned left nine degrees at the maximum allowable bank angle of 23 degrees, then turned right at a bank of 15 degrees, then returned back to its original heading before Yana got out of her dad's seat. This was all performed by the pilot in command, changing the heading using the heading select knob rather than actually having his daughter control the navigation. She basically just got to feel the control column move under her hands. So she wasn't doing anything. So while she had her hands on the controls and she thought for a moment that she was controlling the airplane, she actually wasn't. He was just reaching over and turning the heading knob over her shoulder. And then the airplane would turn 
and she would feel it turn under her her hand. She realized after a moment that it was him doing it, but which is pretty cool still. But what? yeah, but don't do that while you're in the middle of a flight. Investigators found the whole maneuver to be unnecessary and completely for the daughter's entertainment. Yeah. Yep. Then at twelve fifty one, Kudrinsky's son Eldar. With his father's permission, sat in the captain's seat. Again, not a good idea. The friend pilot took a picture to commemorate the event, which was heard on the CVR. How nice! The father and son began a maneuver similar to what was done with Yana, using the heading knob to control. But then Eldar asked if he could turn the control wheel, and his father said yes. And this is where things went south. (sighs) The captain then said, Okay, watch the ground where you're going to turn. Go to the left, turn to the left. This is a quote from the report. Quote, Pilot Command Kudrinsky thus let an unauthorized and unqualified outsider fly the aeroplane. This and preceding decisions and actions by Pilot Command Kudrinsky and co-pilot Piskarev showed an utterly careless and ir- irresponsible disregard of flight safety, the result of poor discipline and a blatant ignorance of the general rules of flight contained within... NPP GA-85, which reads, Persons who have no operational duties on the flight are not allowed in the cockpit. So, okay. End quote. Not only are they not allowed in the cockpit, right? And I I understand that. I don't understand why they were there, period. Mm -hmm. I don't get it. Saying, like, if you were to open the door and, like, ask your dad a question or something, like, I get that. But letting them in the seat and then letting them control the airplane, not a great idea. When you have people on board who have nothing to do with you or your family. You have other passengers that are trying to get to a destination, and you're just letting them control the aircraft. Not only is that utter arrogance, because you think that if anything goes wrong, you can fix it, but you're breaking about a billion rules, and what makes you think that they're not going to find out? Yep. Right. Let's move on. So, Eldar turned left three to four degrees, but was counteracted by the autopilot. Thank God. And his his dad had actually kind of done the same maneuver with him, where he had actually turned the knob and turned yes. back. Yes. Well, I'll get into that. The force on the wheel was 10 kilograms, or 22 pounds for us. Before, Kudrinsky turned the heading knob to turn the plane left and then back to the original heading after the bank decreased. The autopilot complied using just the right aileron, but the left aileron was blocked at the one degree position because one or both of the control wheels were being held at three to five degrees to the right. Specifically, the report says the following could have led to the jammed left aileron. One, restraining of the left control wheel by Eldar. Two, restraining of the right control wheel by the co-pilot Piskarev. Three, restraining of both control wheels, one by each, or jamming of the left aileron linkage between the left aileron and the left control wheel without any force being applied to the wheel by the crew. So They weren't sure why, but the left aileron was stuck in one degree up, which means that the airplane was trying to turn right. The plane began to roll from a left bank to a right bank, and Kudrinsky turned on the navigation submode of autopilot, which increased the bank to 15 degrees toward the original heading, but the left aileron is still in the one degree position. And then Yana started talking to her dad, so he stopped paying attention to Eldar and, you know, the plane. Get them the hell out of the cockpit! You are working! It's kind of like, imagine you being at work with children. 
Now, I'm at work with children all the time. <laughs> Different, right? So with your own kids, which none of us have kids, so a little hard. But those of you out there who have kids, when they're constantly bugging you, are you doing your best work? So imagine you being in charge of 70-ish other people. Close to that, not quite that amount. Yep, so there's that. You're in charge of 70-ish other people, and you are not paying attention to your job. The airplane is not quite acting like it's supposed to, and you're just not paying. And the other thing I don't understand is why is the co-pilot not doing anything? Why is he okay with this? Why is he just going along with it? You're correct. Like, hello? Actually, my part never brought that up at all. Kind of. I'll I'll get to I'll get into that a little it's bit just, later on. Also, there's another pilot in the cockpit that worked for Aerofla, right? Yes. So why the hell is he okay with this? Why are they all complicit in this? I don't get it. There is some suggestion that that because he was a friend and he was taking care of the children, he was sitting with them in the cabin. Right, right, right. There is some belief or some suggestion that he was the one that brought up the idea to the kids to go up and visit their dad. So he was the one that kind of probably, possibly, perhaps, initiated going to the cockpit to visit. Yeah, no. No, 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 no. So at this point, one or both of the control columns were held three to five degrees to the right, and the autopilot was trying to come out of the 15-degree bank so that the plane would be level when on the correct heading, resisting the column. Eldar continued to hold his position for 30 seconds, the force increasing to 11 to 13 kilograms, and was fighting the asymmetry of the ailerons until something happened. Now, we've discussed a lot of crashes before, and it's usually never just one cause, right? Here's the other. Well, here's the other. Investigators found that there was an override function that if there were banking controls held for 30 seconds, the aileron autopilot would disengage without disengaging the rest of the autopilot and without any kind of oral warning. Pitch and yaw were still under autopilot, but rolling was not. So he was trying to counteract the autopilot. The autopilot. And just held it. And he held it, held it, held it to the right as long as he could. And then eventually, after 30 seconds, the airplane was like, Okay, I'll let go. And it did. The autopilot let go of the ailerons. Oh. Only the ailerons, but it let go of the ailerons. At this point, force on the controls decreased to 5 to 7 kilograms because it wasn't fighting the autopilot anymore. But investigators determined that because either just Eldar or Eldar and Piskarev, the co-pilot, were handling the controls, the autopilot disengagement went unnoticed despite change in force. So a big problem with that is that only one aspect of it stopped working and there was no oral warning. Correct. That's a big problem. Yeah, because the flight crew is still under the assumption that the autopilot's working and they have no indication otherwise. Right. Right, and both of them aren't paying attention, right? So even if even if the co-pilot was holding controls, they're not paying enough attention. There's this distraction in the cockpit that they wouldn't even notice until it was too late, obviously, yep, that something was going wrong. The 15-year-old still shouldn't have been in that seat. Why he was allowed to just hold the controls like that, I'm unsure. Well, because the pilot in command was talking to Yana. Right. But Distracted. it should have been... I mean, if you're going to do it, right? First of all, it's illegal. Don't do it. It's horrible. But mm-hmm. if you're going to allow them to do it, make sure that it's like a couple, heh, <laughs> okay, all right, get out of my seat. 
Yep. Yeah. Supervise. Why are you still there? Why are you still holding the controls? So with the control wheels being held slightly to the right, the right bank increased ever so gradually that no one noticed. At 12.55 and 36 seconds, the bank was at 20 degrees, at which point Eldar said, Why is it turning? To which his father responded, It's turning by itself? And Eldar said, Yes. No, you're holding the freaking controls that way. What did you think would happen? He doesn't understand that, though. So, okay, the the problem, part of the problem with that, right, is his dad was flipping with the heading stuff, and the plane was kind of doing it on his own. But you would think that after a while, when it's turning one direction, and then it's turning that direction, your brain eventually goes, oh, I'm doing that. Well, well and I think eventually he actually was letting up like letting go of the controls and it was continuing to turn right which is why he was a little confused because now it was like well i'm not doing that anymore yeah mm-hmm. but the plane takes a while to level out yes yep. but it was continuing to go to the right yep the crew began to try to figure out why as the plane passed through a 45 degree right bank the airplane's operating limit and continued to increase the two crew and marakov then got distracted by one of two scenarios, which the investigators could not figure out which. The crew said, It's turning into the area, guys. We've reached the area, the holding area. Have we? Of course. The investigators couldn't figure out if that was Marakov just saying that the maneuver seemed like a holding pattern, or if the navigation system suggested one based on their inputs. But either way, they were distracted as the plane began descending at a steep bank. Part of the reason why they believe they thought they were in a holding pattern, is because once the airplane goes into a certain angle of bank, on the display, it would show... So normally it would show a straight line following the course on their navigation display. But then all of a sudden, if they put the airplane into a certain amount of bank, the navigation display is going to show a U-turn. And that U-turn is indicative of a holding pattern. Normally they would see that if the airplane was to go into a holding pattern, say, at an airport. Problem is, they're not in an area... Where there is a holding pattern. pattern. Why you would think it would go into a holding pattern when you're not even midway through your flight? Point is... The only reason they thought was because of this display. Well, and they don't even know if that was it. Right. But what they do know is that on the Airbus, once the airplane crosses 45 degrees, that display then doesn't show anything at all. And they know that at one point somebody did mention, well, now it's not showing anything. Because it didn't. So... They had no, whatever they had... whatever the case is, they're distracted. Yes. At 12.55 and 52 seconds, just 16 seconds since Eldar noticed the turn, the plane was at a 50-degree bank, 4-degree angle of attack, and had a vertical load of 1.6 Gs, causing buffeting due to the wings experiencing stall conditions. Yeah. Two seconds later, the bank angle was 63 degrees, and the right wheel was countering the roll while the left wheel was being held in neutral. So they're counteracting each other. Investigators determined that the actions to counter the roll were too late, though, though they corresponded with normal human response time. One thing investigators suspect may have been the reason for late reaction was there was no strong, conspicuous warning of the operating bank limit being reached. Did they not have a, a bank angle, bank angle or They did alarm? not, and I was going to get to that later, but that is something that changed. Yeah, well, I mean, because I covered... The only reason I asked that is I covered that a few episodes back, and yes. I remember... Quite that a, they had an oral warning. Quite so. a few airplanes, even at this time, did. But 
more to the point. This airplane didn't. <laughs> this airplane didn't. <laughs> so they and, didn't realize. And later it did. Okay. <laughs> and also the crew countered the role wrong. Right. Proper procedure was to, quote, disengage the autopilot using the button on the control column or override it using the forward pressure on the column, reduce the angle of attack, a.k.a. pitch, by pushing the control column forward, stop the roll, and reestablish original flight parameters without allowing buffeting to begin again, and then reduce engine thrust if necessary. The co-pilot had turned his wheel left, then sharply to the right for some reason, before going back to the left. All the while, Markov and Kudrinsky were commanding Eldar to turn left, left, the other way. Get him out of the f***ing seat! Why is he still there? Um, there's actually an explanation for that. I'll get into it in a second. Then came the warnings. Altitude discrepancy. Altitude discrepancy. Stall warning. Autopilot. Off. Now the bank was 80 to 90 degrees to the right and diving at 50 degrees downwards with a vertical load of 2 Gs. So in order for him to get out of the seat... You would have to not only overcome 2 Gs, but then like physically get yourself to move? Well, okay, so understanding at this point why he can't get out of the seat. Yeah. Sure. But when they realized it was turning, why did he not get out of the seat? They weren't experiencing that many Gs. No one knows. Still unknown. Yeah. So my point is, is his father is trying to tell him to do something when really he should tell him to just not touch the control column and let the co-pilot do his job. Right. At, At this point, investigators took the time to note that there are no drills in flight crew training for recovering from unusual attitudes of high pitch and bank angles. Which is a huge piece of learning to fly, and a huge piece of learning to fly airliners in particular. Upset recovery is a critical thing, because these airplanes can very easily get put into an attitude that's not normal, as in very high angle of attack, high roll angle, high pitch, all these things. And, And if you don't know how to recover from them, they can be highly, highly deadly. I.e. this. Yep. But now the co-pilot had successfully gotten them out of the role, but was doing that uh, parabolic motion. Right. uh, Which, getting to that point, was a load of 4.6 to 4.7 Gs. So almost 5 Gs, which actually, depending on the person, can make you pass out. So that's fun. Kudrinsky was yelling at his son to get out of the seat which he struggled to do so because of the G-forces, especially at this point. And the co-pilot yelled for throttle to idle as he was trying to pull up, but this led to the following configuration at 12.56 and 41 seconds. Elevator fully back, low airspeed, ailerons deflected to the left, and rudder sharply deflected. This led to a spin. So Piskarev called for full power just as Kudrinsky actually got back in his seat. 30 seconds later, and lots of manipulation that I'm not going to go into the time to describe. The rotation was stabilized at 20 degrees to the left and a pitch of 20 degrees down. Investigators believe that if the crew had just left the controls at neutral, the plane would have become controllable with the Airbus's recovery system. Because it had one. But they didn't do that. Because they didn't know. Yeah. Because they didn't know. They didn't know. Elevator control was deflected all the way back, so they nosed up and lost airspeed. They resumed rotation, and Kondrinsky was shifting the rudder pedals back and forth, trying to get out of it. But now they're just too low, and they struck the ground. Also, over-controlling the airplane's not going to do anything. No. Correct. He actually was using his experience with airplanes, and actually, he was managing to get the airplane nearly recovered, but it was far, far too late. Far, far too late. 
So now we're going to take our break so that uh, we can watch the simulation coupled with the CVR that has subtitles. We will have the link for it on our website for your reference. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. That's horrible. All because his kids want to come see him in the cockpit. And then he let them sit in his seat. Right. It's one thing to go see the cockpit, but it's another to sit there. Like I said, I would understand if they were just coming in there to just say hi or to ask him a question or even just to see, you know, but letting Mm -hmm. them in his seat and and touch the controls, that's a big problem. Yes. Huge. And again, it's another big problem that no one else thought that was like not okay. The right. other pilot didn't. The co-pilot didn't. Right. No one said anything to the adverse to say, you know, they really shouldn't be doing that. Right. And it caused them to crash because yeah. they couldn't get what's-his-face, Eldar, out of yeah. the seat fast enough. Right. And he was trying to control the airplane, and he's not trained. Right. And then you have a first officer who's sitting all the way back in his seat who can barely grab the controls to control it, let alone use the rudder pedals, which he couldn't do at all. And then once you have G-forces involved, he couldn't even move the seat because good luck. So it was, there was a lot going on here. I mean, this this whole accident, if you listen to the CVR and you watch this uh, reconstruction, this happened really fast. I mean, we, we kind of made it sound like a long time, but it wasn't. The whole thing happened in, what was it, just over a minute, basically. From the time they were they noticed that they were banking to the right a little heavily to the time they hit the ground. Which means they fell 33,000 feet in that time. And as a matter of fact, they did. Because at one point, they were falling more than 40,000 feet per minute. Which is absolutely nuts. It's one of those things that... There's a reason why you can't allow certain things to happen, mm-hmm. like having someone in your seat that's not supposed to be there. Right. They have rules in place because otherwise something like this can happen. And it really does take less than a minute to crash an aircraft. Oh, yeah. It's so easy, that's how <laughs> to be perfectly honest, to crash an aircraft mid-flight. Right. So... More surprises me that the people around him let him do that without him giving control to the co-pilot. This is fair. But now you can say that another bigger problem is that the crew wasn't trained for upset recovery and there was a lackadaisical atmosphere. So the the first officer was sitting all the way back. Again. Why? No control. He wasn't in control of the airplane. Also, it was never handed the control was never handed over to him. But why is he sitting all the command. way back in his seat? Don't know. When the other pilot wasn't in his seat. Right. So all of that's happening, and just this lackadaisical atmosphere, and that, yeah, again, that lack of training. Big thing. They didn't even understand all systems of this airplane. They might have been able to counteract some of them had the PIC actually been in the seat and controlling the airplane, but he wasn't. Well, and it's, it's kind of clear that they there were a few things that could have helped them 
alarm wise to understand what was going on. Big time. But beyond that, if they had better crew resource management, you would say that this wouldn't have happened at all. That and upset recovery. Because even right. with the warning, if you don't know how to recover from that warning, good luck. Well, and then it's like, well, why weren't they trained for that? You right. Know? This is 1994. It's not 1974. No, exactly. And this is true. But we're also talking about Russia. Russia. Yeah. And no offense, but especially when they're coming out of the Soviet Union, this was there was a lot of participating in the world theater that needed to change for them and needed to adapt. And they weren't there yet, especially with the airlines. So that said, yes, there's a lot of dangerous things going on here and a lot of things that were needed. And yes, there were things they learned even about the Airbus, let alone the training for the crew and such. But it, it this was obviously a very one-off. So that said, there's uh, a section called Conclusions, and they're not really findings, but we're going to go through them kind of like they are. This is kind of what they have in place of a probable cause, because they don't have a probable cause. They say, The A310 disaster was caused by a stall, spin, and impact with the ground, resulting from a combination of the following factors. That's how they lead into these conclusions. Nice. <laughs> One, the decision by PIC Kudrinsky to allow an unqualified and unauthorized outsider, his son, to occupy his duty station and intervene in the flying of the aeroplane. Yeah. That's how it is written. <laughs> Two, the execution of demonstration maneuvers that were not anticipated in the flight plan or flight situation, with the PIC operating the autopilot while not at his duty station. So he's reaching over and turning the knob rather than actually sitting there and doing these things. And also it wasn't in the flight plan. And also it's not on their flight route. Big problems. And also they violated like a bajillion things. Yes. By doing all these things, they were violating policies, procedures, laws, rules. You name it, they broke it. They broke it, yeah. <laughs> you name it, they broke it. Yes. Three. Application by the outsider and the co-pilot of control forces that interfered with the functioning of the roll channel of the autopilot and are not recommended in the A310 flight manual, thus overriding the autopilot and disconnecting it from the aileron control linkage. Big thing. So we'll get to this again in a minute. But yes, it disconnected the autopilot. And there was no oral warning to say it No oral warning. Another key thing, the crew was never trained that that could happen. Yeah, that's a big problem. Yes. It's also kind of a problem that they didn't know about the, the recovery, the Airbus recovery right. system. So, but here's the thing. Because what they did say was that the first officer should have at least had the wherewithal, the experience. They, they wrote in there, it's kind of the weird the way they worded it. But they wrote that the first officer should have had the experience to know that when, after that 30 seconds, if he had been holding the controls... Which they don't know if he was. If he had been holding yeah, the controls. Yeah, that's part of the problem. Well, that and if he had been holding the controls at the same time as Eldar, he might have just assumed that the change in force was yeah, because exactly. of Eldar. So, so they were saying that his experience, he should have known that the change in force meant that something changed with the autopilot and the airplane. However, they also did substitute in there and they said if he was counter-controlling with Eldar then he might have thought it was Eldar's fault that the pressure changed on the controls and not the autopilot. So they have no way of knowing whether or not the first officer even had his hands on the controls and if he would have recognized that the autopilot disconnected. Obviously he didn't, 
but they have no way of proving. I still that. think it's bad that they didn't have an oral warning. Any it is when anything yes. gets disconnected, there should be a thing that says, "Hey, I'm disconnected." Correct. And any more in most cockpits because they're so computerized, they actually have a specific space for if anything, anything at all changes with the airplane that's unexpected, it will pop up and it'll even flash on their little display screens. It's key in most airplane and airline operations anymore. If something like this were to happen where it disconnects, first of all, there will be an oral tone played of some kind. And then second of all, you'll have a little flashing thing that'll say, just so you know, this disconnected, you know, for example. And they didn't have any of that. It just did. (laughs) You did for the full autopilot, right? Yeah, but that's one thing. You hear that in the CVR. But because there were aspects of the autopilot that could be shut off separate from others... It's kind of important that the crew knows, you know. Yeah. Oh, hey, that's not working anymore. Also, right. side note, if you go listen to the CVR, the autopilot disconnect noise is the same that's still used today in Airbus. And when you're, if you're flying on a baby bus, um, that's an A3, 19, 20, 21, any of those, and you're sitting close enough to the cockpit. Actually, oh, you can hear it. Actually, on approach, you can you can hear them disconnect the autopilot, so you know exactly when the the pilots actually took over hand flying. We have flown so many Frontier flights in the second row and hear it every time. Yeah. You just hear the blip, 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 blip. It disconnected. That's how you know. It's pretty loud. It's what, what's noticeable. Boeing's? I don't fly on enough Boeing. This is Boeing. That's autopilot disconnect. It sounds like danger. So Airbus... That's the autopilot disconnect for an Airbus. One more time. Which is still the same one all the time. Four. And this one's kind of a long one. The co-pilot and pilot in command failed to detect the fact that the autopilot had become disconnected from the aileron control linkage, probably because the A310 instrumentation has no declutch warning. That's kind of their way of saying it doesn't have a warning when it disconnects. Disengages. Yes, disengages. The co-pilot and pilot in command may have been unaware of the peculiarities of the declutching function and the actions to be taken in such a situation because of a lack of appropriate information in the flight manual and crew training program. So in other words, they just didn't notice. They didn't, they may not have known because they weren't trained on it and it wasn't in the manuals. Big problem. And it was difficult for the co-pilot to detect the disengagement of the autopilot by feel, either because of the small forces on his control column or because he took changing forces to be the result of Eldar's actions. So again, they couldn't determine if he even noticed. And the pilot in command was away from his position and distracted by the conversation with his daughter. So there was many factors there they blame in why the the autopilot disengagement from the ailerons was not noticed. Five, a slight unintentional further turn of the control wheel following disengagement of the autopilot caused a right roll to develop. Six, the pilot in command and co-pilot failed to detect the excessive right bank angle, which exceeded operating limits, and were late in re-entering the aircraft control loop because their attention was focused on determining why the aircraft had banked to the right, a maneuver they interpreted as entry into a holding area, with either no course line or with a new, quote, false, course line generated on the navigational display. I think it's kind of poor terminology, but point is, is they were saying that because of the Airbus's tendency to show that U-turn, once you've gone past a certain bank angle, that's what made them maybe think that they were going into holding pattern, but still a little strange. 
A strong signal indicating that the airplane had exceeded the allowable operating bank angle, taking account for the delay in recognizing and assessing the situation making and making a decision could in this situation have attracted the crew's attention and enabled them to detect the bank at an earlier stage. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Y you are correct. You are correct. Any kind of indication would have been nice, and they just didn't have any. Seven, the aeroplane was subjected to buffeting and high angles of attack because the autopilot continued to perform its height-keeping function even after the actuator declutched and, or disconnected, and as the right roll developed, until the pilot disconnected it by overriding its longitudinal channel. So, again, really kind of poor wording, but they were saying the airplane was trying to maintain altitude the whole time that it was also in a bank, so the airplane started doing these weird maneuvers all on its own. If you watch the simulation, it's crazy. Yeah, the airplane did some of the craziest it's things I've ever weird. seen. It, it looks ridiculous, and that's because the plane's trying to keep altitude. Because mm -hmm. that's what the autopilot, the was, mode they're in, is trying to do. Right, until it was finally disconnected, right. and then the airplane was just pretty much free-falling. Through the sky. Yes, in all sorts of weird maneuvers. Eight, inappropriate and ineffective action on the part of the co-pilot who failed to disconnect the autopilot and to push the control column forward when the buffeting occurred and the aeroplane entered an unusual attitude, high angles of attack and pitch. These actions which caused the aeroplane to stall and spin could have resulted from the presence of an outsider in the left-hand pilot's seat. The less than optimum working posture of the co-pilot, i.e. his seat was all the way back. The occurrence two seconds following the onset of buffeting of an unintentional pitching up of the airplane, which sharply increased the angle of attack and reduced lateral controllability, unpreparedness of the crew to act in the situation because of a lack of appropriate drills in the training program, or in other words, lack of training on unusual attitudes, and then the temporary, last, the temporary loss of spatial orientation in night conditions. So it's true. They were in the dark. They had no idea how close to the ground they were. They were trying to recover as if they had time to get to the ground. To but they be also, fair. They also didn't know. I mean, they just didn't know how to recover this airplane. So, and part of the problem, right, if you can think about the crew's mindset, you have mm -hmm. a pilot that's not in his seat. You have a pilot that's pulled all the way back and can't pull his seat forward. So it's right. not like they can see their altimeter. It's not right. like they can monitor their instruments, right? They would have no idea they were falling that fast. They were more worried about trying to re-control the airplane than look at their altimeter, which I kind of understand. But also, if you weren't pushed all the way back, yeah, it probably wouldn't have been that big of a problem. And again, I mean, all of this is happening in the dark of night. They had less than a minute to figure all this out. There was extreme G-forces. The adrenaline is running like crazy. Don't get me wrong. There are so many things working against them trying to recover this airplane, let alone the fact that they took actions in the beginning they just shouldn't have in the first place. But they found themselves in the situation and they couldn't get out of it because there were so many things working against them. Lack of training, dark of night, loss of orientation, and just overall adrenaline, let alone the G-forces. So these things just, you know... It's an overwhelming situation, obviously, and it's really unfortunate. It's this... kind of like um, if you were to drive your car down an icy road mm -hmm. and you suddenly lose control mm -hmm. in the middle of a busy road. Right. That is the kind of adrenaline that they were probably experiencing, and if then not some. worse. Yeah. yeah, and then some. So it's it's very hard to focus when you're that panicked. Oh, for sure. 
However, it is their fault that they got put into this situation. Yes. Hands down. And thankfully, they did blame them in the report, which we'll get to, again, more in a moment. But yes, this is all true. And there were so many things with that that just don't happen anywhere anymore. Or pretty much ever. Or wouldn't happen anywhere else. Right. Like, I was, I was telling the two of them before we break, or during the break, this wouldn't have happened in the 60s in the United States. Yeah. So it's not untold that, say, in the past, um, people had their kids come to the cockpit. And who knows? Maybe some pilots did let their kids sit in the seat. But that was pretty few and far between that ever let that happen. And professionalism is usually still maintained. In this case, completely gone. And... We can get to more of why that might be in a little bit. But there is this reality that, you know, sure, it probably does happen or did happen where people who are flying, especially before 9-11 and the cockpit door reinforcement and all that, and let alone crew resource management, all these things, that people might have let their kids into the cockpit to see the airplane while it was flying, but generally they probably wouldn't have gotten out of their seat or let the kid take control, or anything like that. Because it just isn't the right thing to do. And in this case, this was just the one really unfortunate case where that did happen. Now, I know there's quite a few people out there who might be listening to this who are like, this sounds really vaguely familiar. Where have I heard this before? You ever read the book Airframe? It's actually, Airframe was actually very loosely based on this accident. If you ever read the book Airframe, not to give it away, but that's kind of what happened. And it's a very good book. I definitely highly recommend it. So, definitely a horrible situation. Which is by Michael Crichton. Yes, by Michael Crichton. Who wrote Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park! Yes. Hey! I figured I should throw that in there, because I think at this point we all know Miranda's Jurassic Park affinity. Don't judge me. Okay. Okay. (laughs) So, all these things aside, we're going to cover a weird section they put in the report, section five, called Shortcomings Revealed by the Investigation. (laughs) Okay. Again, there's no probable cause in here, but they have this thing, too. Uh, One, the lack of general provisions regarding the procedure for introducing aircraft of foreign manufacture into civil operation in the Russian Federation and for monitoring their operations. So, yes, this is true. They brought in a really new airplane. Advanced airplane. Advanced airplane that was manufactured outside of Russia, Russia, let alone the Soviet Union, which they had for so long been producing basically the same kinds of airplanes all really funny looking go look them up they produced all these very specific kind of airplanes with these kind of antiquated cockpits but they were pretty much all the same and switching from one airplane to another was not terribly difficult but then going to this new really advanced cockpit where everything is just in a different place and different languages and these kinds of things kind of forced their hand into having to learn some things really quickly and they definitely didn't take the time to actually train this they they i shouldn't entirely say that because they did send this elite set of pilots this elite quote-unquote set of pilots to go be trained on the a310 professionally by airbus and all that but obviously it wasn't enough they didn't have enough time to actually adjust to this airplane because these pilots also had to make sure they knew english well And they had to learn international operations at the same time. There were so many new things being thrown at these pilots, not just learning the specific airplane. You could argue that that was a big part of their shortcoming in the the whole of bringing the A310 into the fleet. It's almost like... So, 
those of you who've been listening for a while, and maybe even just listening for a couple weeks, who knows, you know that a lot of the training that has to do with some of the recoveries and Mm -hmm. things of that nature actually go from the airline, not the manufacturer of the airplane. Right. So if Aeroflot didn't know how to recover from some of this with this specific airplane, which makes sense because it was new to them, it was a different experience, then it would make sense why they wouldn't be trained on certain issues and how to recover certain things because the airline itself didn't know. Right. So keep that in mind. Yes, very true. And so let's go through the rest of these because there's only three more of these in this little section. Well, we'll speed through them real quick. Yes. So two, Russian Airlines had insufficient specialized ground equipment to make use of flight recorders in monitoring the operation of aircraft of foreign manufacture. So they didn't even have the equipment to monitor like their the flight crews on these airplanes, which, again, we'll get to the bigger picture of this in a minute. Three. A lack of initial and recurrent flight training of civil pilots in establishing spatial orientation and recovering from unusual attitudes. Big thing. They weren't trained in it. They weren't trained in unusual attitude training, which they found was actually kind of a deficiency across the board in the industry. But there was still some amount of it being trained around the world, and they didn't have it. And for inadequate monitoring of airline operations by the Regional Air Transport Administration and the Air Transport Department. This is kind of key. This was a this was an interesting turning point in aviation in Russia because you think about it, they come out of the Soviet Union, they're pretty used to doing everything mm, shady, kind of, we can say. As we can say, Soviet-wise. It's not really the great descript, I would say, like, unregulated. It was unregulated, and the biggest, so here's the bigger picture I wanted to get to. The biggest reason it was really un, unregulated was because of money. You remember, the Soviet Union didn't have a whole lot of money to spend on things. And when the Soviet Union didn't have a lot of money to spend on things, the airlines definitely impact from that because they were country-owned. They were they were owned by Russia. Aeroflot was a Russian-owned airline. So they were, uh, they were federally owned. And when the government had no money to spend, they definitely didn't spend it on the airline. So therefore, the airline didn't have any money to spend on training, maintenance, or anything like that. Like I said at the very beginning, they barely had enough money to buy these three A310s. They did it more out of a a peace offering to the rest of the world. They were like, we will buy your new product to show you that we want to be part of your world. And while it worked, they did it poorly for themselves. And that's not a good way to do things, we'll say. And so again, they're kind of coming out of this era where it was unregulated and there was no money wasn't necessarily still money at this point, but they needed to start changing this. They needed to start changing the regulations and the ways that that these airlines operated. The oversight, the training, the maintenance, the implementations, those kinds of things. Yeah, because what comes with lackadaisical regulations mm-hmm. is things like this. Right. Where the crew thinks they can do whatever they want in the cockpit and not get in trouble for it. Right. And... You know, who knows what would have happened to these pilots had they been able to recover the aircraft. Right. I would like to think they would have gotten fired because it's completely against regulations and you shouldn't have someone in the seat that shouldn't be there and et cetera, et cetera, right? But who knows what would have happened. Right. But that kind of explains why they thought it was okay. Why everyone was like, okay, 
we'll have these the twelve year old and the fifteen year old in the captain's seat. Sure. Like right. otherwise in pretty much any other airline <laughs> across yeah. the world, there would have been a big red light going, um, out. And mind you, Aeroflot, Aeroflot has changed a lot, and this would never, never happen anymore. Well, they're, of course not. <laughs> they're part of the, they're part of the ICAO for sure, and they're, they're definitely, they participate in the IATA as well. So they're, they're a big part of the world and uh, its operatings now. It's but just transferring from non-regulation to regulation, there's going to be some gray area for a little while, right? And and to be honest, this accident, while horrible was maybe the best thing they could have asked for. And that's a terrible thing to say. But the reality is is that since they opened up to being Russia, not the Soviet Union, there were actually a lot of foreign nationals on board. And this wasn't something they were entirely used to. It was usually mostly just Russian nationals or Soviet nationals. And now they were having to deal with passengers from all over the world. They had UK passengers. They had Chinese passengers. They had passengers from all over the world on this flight. And because it was so impactful when the accident happened and how critical and key and kind of mind-blowing the mistakes were that caused this accident that really impacted people around the world. That's what brought it so much attention. And I'm actually kind of proud of them when they wrote this report for putting that little bit in there where they actually blamed their own air transport department of the Russian Federation for not doing oversight. Big thing. Ta-da. Also, the fact that there were so many different nationalities on board is why it is published in English. Yes. Which, good thing. So then they have a recommendation section. It's only seven quick, short recommendations. So we're just going to blow through these really quick and then we can talk about this a little bit more, but there's not a whole lot more to cover. So they recommended one, in order to improve state oversight of flight safety, proposals should be prepared and submitted to the government of the Russian Federation concerning the strengthening of state inspection units and the inclusion of highly qualified specialists within them. Basically, building an oversight department, period. Two, the necessary steps should be taken to increase cockpit discipline in flight and to organize effective monitoring of compliance with flight procedures using airborne voice and data recorders. So, using the FDR and the CVR to really track how pilots are doing things. A lot of airlines do this. It's that whole, like, this call may be, re- may be monitored or recorded for... Quality for, services. Yeah, yeah, for training purposes. Same thing. They try to do that with the airlines with the flight data and, and CVRs. So this is uh, an important thing. But they're also saying in there, basically implementing crew resource management. Right. That's what I was going to say. CRM. <laughs> CRM. 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 Big time. Kerm? Serm? Serm? Serm. Three. The flight crew training should be improved to take account for the special factors revealed by the investigation of this accident, including the monitoring of aircraft attitude during instrument flight and methods of recovery from unusual attitudes. Big thing. Recovering from unusual attitudes was huge, because if they had had any training in that, they might have had a chance. And this was a really key incident in flipping things, not just in... Russia, but around the world as far as upset recovery training. It it needed to happen. Everybody needed to know how to do upset recovery because when you find yourself in a situation like this, it may have been caused by almost anything else, you got to figure out how to get out of it. And understanding the forces of an airplane is pretty key. So big time training. They skipped a number in the report. That's nice. So there's actually only six of these. Okay. They just wrote 6.1, 6.2, 6.3, 6.5. 6.6 Maybe they're one of the cultures where four is uh, like an evil number. 
You know what I mean? No, because they had it in the previous sections. I had a 5.4. Oh, I don't know. They just skipped it. It's that fine. Was, I don't know. I tried to make tried. sense and it didn't work. So there's six recommendations. We're going to go through the last three here. Five or four. <laughs> Review the question of creating within the Russian civil aviation system single type operations centers for aircraft of foreign manufacture. So centralizing training. And especially on aircraft that is not produced by the Russian right. Federation, which is a big thing for them around the world. We got pretty used to airplanes coming from everywhere. Yeah. And this wasn't I wouldn't say this wasn't a problem, but I would say this wasn't as much of an issue because much of the airplanes produced around the world have very pretty similar systems and characteristics and information was flowing a lot more freely between the manufacturers. Plus, they would use um a lot of the same manufacturers for their subsystems. So say the computers, the flight computer systems in airplanes are all produced by Honeywell or by whomever it is. So a lot of the airplanes around the world use pretty similar systems in similar fashion. Whereas Russia had a whole different thing. They did all on their own, more specifically the Soviet union. So as they came to the rest of the world, they had to relearn everything and join the rest of the world. Five, together with the aircraft designers and in cooperation with specialists from the research organizations of the Russian Federation, determine the measures necessary to prevent aeroplanes from exceeding their operating bank and angle of attack limits and to prevent the autopilot from disengaging its aileron control function without warning. This did change. Big thing. Airbus did fix this. Bank angle? That's a warning now. It spits out bank angle. Literally. Literally, that's the sound. And it does it before you reach that critical point where the airplane is uncontrollable. So the key thing that we really didn't mention is that the A310's characteristics, once the reason they say that operating limit was 45 degrees, which some pilots go, what in the world? That doesn't seem like much. Well, it still was because the way that the A310 was designed, it wasn't that it would overstress the airplane, but beyond 45 degrees, the ailerons didn't have enough deflection to bring the airplane back to stable. It would actually continue to roll beyond there. So there's actually a different set of maneuvers they had to do to bring the airplane back to level, separate from using just the ailerons. Yeah, because then you have to yaw and pitch as well. Right. So these were things that they weren't trained on, for one. And two, yes, it was beyond the operating limit of the A310. And eventually they did, you could say, overstress the airplane. It is amazing that this thing did not fall apart when it was going through as many Gs as it was and doing the crazy maneuvers it did. I was so surprised, to be honest. Yes, it held its ground. And actually, the fact that they nearly recovered it is pretty incredible. If they had landed this airplane, it would have been scrapped. Look at the simulator footage. It's crazy. Yeah, it is pretty crazy. It's so crazy. how we, It's so hard to do it justice. It's so weird how it just flips around and stuff, and then they almost recover it before they hit the hill. Like, it's... I can't even imagine that the plane would even stay intact. And the good news is, yes, is that probably a lot of people were unconscious when they died. There's potential. Thanks for that lovely insight. (laughs) Hey, it's better than screaming your entire way to your death. They do know that some people were not buckled, and when they went zero G, had a nice trip through the cabin. Oh, I was going to say, I'm like, hopefully you got your seatbelts buckled. Well, so I didn't bring this up because I didn't watch the entire air disasters episode but at one point they found a flight attendant who had a oxygen oxygen mask mask on on, and they thought that was weird and when they found one of the kids in the cockpit they're like they must have just been thrown forward 
Yeah, they literally thought the kids were thrown into the cockpit. It wasn't until later when they listened to the CBR they realized, no, they were just in the cockpit. So there's one more, one more recommendation. Six or seven, whatever you want to call it. Six, make a number of amendments and additions to the A310 flight manual and other regulatory documents in response to the material in the report and the shortcomings revealed during the accident investigation. So that's kind of their overall way of saying, like, change... The way the A310 is handled, so the way it's trained, let alone the warnings in it and all these things. And Airbus actually did take a lot of notes, because they were very, very intently wanting to find out why their brand new airplane fell out of the sky. Which is good. Yes. Right? When you have an airplane, the always the bigger issue is, is it the airplane's fault? Is right. it something wrong with the airplane? And especially with newer airplanes, there yes. can be things that are undetectable when you're, you know, flight testing them than in actual flight. And I think it's pretty fair to say that it wasn't really the airplane's fault that this happened. However, there was a lot of fault in the airplane that there didn't help. There were a help. few things that could have helped yes. that didn't help. The thing is, is that this airplane actually had systems that could have gotten them out of this, but they weren't trained on it either. So... It kind of goes hand in hand. It's like, yes, they didn't have the warning about the bank angle or several other things, but but the airplane did have a stability protection where if the airplane was in a bad situation, it could find itself into stable flight on its own. Right. However, the pilots didn't know that, so they weren't trained on, hey, if you're in this unusual attitude, let go of the control and let the airplane stabilize itself. And also, I mean, it's kind of instinct. You don't trust the airplane to do it. Do that for itself, which I get. Airbus is like big into automated, and so stuff, even and back it, well, then. and transferring to it from what Tupolev and Ilyushin. Yeah, and it's going to be Yakolev. a whole different. It's going to be a whole different animal, and so that's kind of a big thing. And even now, like actually, Airbus has gone way further with this. Their stability protection won't even let the airplane reach its limits. Literally, like if it gets too close to one of its operating limits, the airplane will right itself. Without the pilot, even if the pilot's putting in an opposite command, the airplane will stabilize. Which is good because we've covered multiple accidents where situational awareness causes the pilots to crash the plane because they think the plane's wrong. Right. Fun fact: ninety-nine percent of the time, plane's not wrong. Right. So this was a newer concept with the A three hundred and ten, so that's kind of why they didn't wholly understand it, and the airplane didn't have these stability protections that were so overriding. Um, it came a lot more with the fly-by-wire with the side stick, because the side stick can put a lot more force against you than a yoke can. You can actually, with two hands, you can do a lot more damage to that <laughs> yoke than you can with the side stick. Anyways, point being, the airplanes are a lot better at stability protection. So Airbus took a lot of notes when this accident happened, and they changed a lot of things and helped them actually develop better and better systems as they went. Boeing took notes, too, and they, they implemented a lot of this stuff into their newer airplanes as well. The 777 was... Brand new at that time. And the 777 has since implemented a lot of these same things since they had the opportunity to do that. So, you know, you look at all the airplanes since then, and there's so many changes. And then let alone Aeroflot's got better training program. They're more internationally involved in that. And most of their fleet now comes from the rest of the world. So they've taken advantage of what they can, and they're now participating in the world theater and what we have to offer. And... And being part of the conversation, let alone the training. Well, so. and also being part of the ICAO. And the IATA, yes. 
because those international the organizations. Um, thank you. The international organizations are very important for airline safety because then everyone's on the same you know right. playing field. Everyone understands well, everything. And kind of a conversation we've had in the past but not in depth. The IATA and the ICEO are both big organizations that have the resources to help all of their participating airlines, which are most airlines on earth. They help all these airlines maintain that. So it's not like the airlines have to go out there on their own and figure out training and figure out what's required and what's not. All of that is provided to them by the ICEO and the IATA as long as they choose to participate. And then the ICEO and the IATA can really help them develop that and they can do the oversight and they can do the oversight on it and all that. So big things changed. This accident just couldn't happen again. If it did, that would be even more mind blowing than it was then. I would be very concerned. As they used to say, I will eat my hat. Yes. I will eat my hat if that ever happens again. Ooh. Yuck. Alright, so that was Aeroflot Flight five Ninety-three. Yes. Five ninety-three. <laughs> she helped her along with hand signals. Because she helped me. Thank you so much for listening. We do have a quote-unquote listener question that I'm going to read because Nick has not heard this yet. So. Oh, God. This is from Michael. He says, hey, guys, not really a question. Just wanted to say thanks for the podcast and the countless hours of entertainment. Greetings from Switzerland. Thanks. Yay. Thanks for listening. Several yeah. weeks ago, we covered, I believe it might have been the Parton Air. Yeah, it was, the Parton Air, it was the Parton Air accident where we were talking about APUs and, and false parts and all those things. So there's a couple things I wanted to be kind of clear on because I guess I kind of worded it wrong. I knew this. I, when I said that APUs sometimes are older engines, that was true for a period of time. They would actually take, for example, in, in some of the older airplanes, they would take old Learjet engines from the original 23s and they'd use those as APUs. But... That's not commonplace. APUs are actually their own entities, and they're produced as just an APU. They're not an actual operating engine, engine for, yeah. for thrust. To, to quote Kevin, yes. some of them might be based on or derived from standalone turboprop or turboshaft engines. For Correct. instance, the APU used on the L-1011 was a Pratt & Whitney ST6 variant. The ST6 was derived from the PT6 turboprop. Right. It shares many common components, primarily the spinny bits inside. A lot. Spinny bits. <laughs> a lot of the reason for that, because you think about it, it, it makes a lot of sense. Those parts are readily available. They're easy to maintain. And that being the case, they're also pretty cheap to get and produce for mass, just for one simple purpose, producing electrical power. So these are really standalone things. They were built solely as APUs. They weren't, I'm not saying, I guess I should have clarified. I'm not saying they were taken out of an air, another airplane and thrown in. They are modified or built for that purpose only. Also, we had mentioned that FAA certified parts need to be used. Yes, they don't always have to come from the FAA. Oh, you yeah. mean the manufacturer? Yes, the manufacturer. Well, manufacturer. So, so they have to be certified FAA parts, but they don't have to come from the manufacturer. They can come from third parties. They just have to be certified. So I want to read this bit specifically. So the reason that uh, we take a lot of stock in what Kevin says is he works with power plants He's or engines. He's extremely knowledgeable, and I really appreciate him. I'm not, like... That's just what he does for a living. He works on a specific engine that we know of. We have faith in what he says. He's done it for a long time, and he's pro provided us a lot of like yes, actual documentation and knowledge to back this up, and I really appreciate it. 
Now for bogus parts. Yes, it is a huge problem, but you imply that either a part is factory new or it is junk. Not true. Not even close. And no. we didn't meant no. to say that. That's and, not what we were implying. And I, know, and I know that because my dad is an aircraft mechanic and yeah. I've, I've helped him with replacement parts and I remember him ordering certified parts. They're horribly expensive. So Used certified parts. In our business, one of the services we provide is reducing engines to spares. We do this for third parties, including the original engine manufacturer and independent part brokers. When we do this service, the engine is completely disassembled. The individual parts are cleaned and all original engine manufacturer required non-destructive visual and dimensional inspections are performed. Depending on what the part is, or sorry, is it original engine engineering manufacturer? Probably, yes. Sorry, he used abbreviations. I'm sorry. Depending on what the part is, we might also rework the part to make it serviceable. After all that, we create an FAA form 8130-3 stating that the part identified is an overhauled condition and the part is then sent to the owner. And yes, some of the latter are located in or around Miami. Yes, this So what up. we mean to say, and what we meant to say, is not that it has to be brand spanking new to be. It can a be from a scrapped part. part. Right. It has to be tested and certified to be safe to be sold. And so the problem for, was more that these FAA certified parts were being falsified. The documents were, you're using inspectors that did not certify them. They were using um, like for, uh, forged signatures and stamps and such. And then they were just pulling these parts off, cleaning them, and not doing any of the dimensional or testing work to make sure that they are actually functional. And then they would just send them off to... And this is a really common practice to just have planes, scrap planes around for parts. So, for example, at Centennial Airport, you know, our local little airport, they have a couple of lawn darts, right? Yeah, the Fairchild Metro Liners, yes. Yeah, they have a couple of those just hanging around for parts. Um, yeah, a couple they're... of Dornier sitting there, too. Yes, I think that the 767 from American Airlines Flight 383, the second time, which is sitting at O'Hare, is also used for parts. Yeah, it's pretty much just a parts airplane at this point. I think some museum pieces are as well. I think there's a couple of birds out at the Boeing Museum of Flight also have parts. Yes, to some extent they can be, but since they're protected articles, most of the time they can't be. But yes. To an extent. So it's a very common practice. We're not saying at all that anything that doesn't come from the manufacturer is crap. But it needs to be tested rigorously and, and approved to be safe before it can be sold under the FAA certification. Not that, you know, cleaning it, making it shiny and then selling it again without doing any of the inspections to make sure that part is actually safe to put on another aircraft. Yeah. So... On that note, if any of you guys notice that we say something wrong, please tell us. Yes, uh, and we're not perfect, and right. we're not experts. Right, and thank you so much, Kevin. I mean, really, he's several times been like, hey, I noticed you said these things, and he's, I like the fact that he's not like... A dick about it? Well, it, you know, that's, I guess, one way to put it. He's not, cr like, mean about his criticalities. He's more like, I like the fact that he wants to provide us right information, because we want to provide right information. And yes, sometimes I don't, I don't do enough research into what I want to talk about, and sometimes I'm kind of caught on the spot when one of you guys asks me a question. <laughs> so sometimes I kind of spit out an answer I, I know something a little bit about. For example, enough. one time we asked Nick, what's the difference between N1 and N2 in an engine? He's like, I kind of understand what that is. And Kevin sent us an entire email explaining it. Yes, and a diagram. And, and I highly appreciate it. His knowledge is 
awesome. And I love it when you guys are able to share that knowledge with us so we can be smarter. And like it's, if it's, you have a material science question, I got you. Otherwise, um, I'm you know that meme where it's like, when did you learn about blah, 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 blah last night? Yeah. yeah. For me, it's usually a couple hours ago. <laughs> yeah. And that's fair. But I, I like this. And it's also fun to engage with you guys and be more involved in this. And so thank you, Kevin. And thank you to anybody else who wants to throw out corrections like this. Like it's Please do it's it. important. And, and we want to make sure we give you guys the right information. So that's part of what we do. That's part of why we enjoy doing this. So, uh, thank you so much for listening, as always. If you would like, you can check out the Patreon and everything that comes with the different tiers and stuff. Kevin's a patron. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Thank you to all of those of you who are patrons and who have joined recently. We really appreciate your support. We appreciate everyone listening's support, because guess what? You support us whether or not you're a patron. Uh, If you'd like more content, remember you can sign up for the newsletter. It has things like a sneak peek into next month's episodes or the coming month, uh, what we covered last month, a Patreon exclusive, uh, a story that's written by one of us, and a tidbit of the month. So if you want to check that out, the subscription information's on the website. And then remember the story, it's probably today, actually, that we'll be recording the stories for this month so if you want to submit when you fell in love with aviation make sure you do that again on the website send it now stat 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 go 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 and you can always send us a listener question if you want if you want just to say hi hello whatever you can email us you can message us on facebook on instagram really we'll see it it doesn't matter (laughs) yeah we see it all pretty much right away slide into our dms one of us always (laughs) sees it like right away and we just tell the others yeah and we'll go see it and if we can't answer you right away. We will eventually answer you. Yes. It's usually when you have some bizarre question, we're like, panic. Or when you give us 10 suggestions. Helen. And we need time to figure <laughs> out when we're going to do them. Hey, that's amazing. Yeah. Thank you, by the way. We do like suggestions and being a requested episode podcast, so we love that. Yeah, I love that we're listener-driven. We're it just makes me so happy. going to post episode now a little bit. You guys are the best. Thanks for listening. Yes, you are the best. Thank you so much. And we'll catch you next time. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.